That's the beginning of Rachmaninoff's Piano Sonata Number no. 2 in B-flat minor, opus 36, played by our soloist Yevgenia Rubinova. But you could say, which Rachmaninoff Piano Sonata Number no. 2? Because in a way, there are two, not just versions, but two, as it were, completely different creative readings of this sonata that Rachmaninoff left. First of all, there's the version of the sonata that Rachmaninoff wrote in 1913. That was when he was still living in Russia, four years before the Great Revolution. The second version he wrote 14 years later, that's in 1931, after Rachmaninoff had left Russia for good and taken up residence in the United States. Now, when it comes to this question of revisions, it's always interesting because composers revise works for all sorts of different reasons. And I think we have a question here from Lucy Cahoon. I was just wondering what prompted Rachmaninoff to revise the sonata, and do we know how he felt about the success or otherwise of the second version? I'm afraid it's very much otherwise when it came to the success of this sonata, at least for most of Rachmaninoff's lifetime. It wasn't a success when it was first performed in 1913, and it wasn't much of a success in its revised version either. It wasn't really until Vladimir Horowitz, the great Russian pianist, took up the sonata in the 1940s that it really began to establish a life for itself as a concert item in its own right. But why did Rachmaninoff revise the sonata? Well, there's a letter he wrote to a friend uh, in 1930, the year before he made the revision, where he says, when I look at my early works and see how much there is there that is superfluous, well, even in this sonata, I see so many voices are moving simultaneously, and it's just too long. Well, Rachmaninoff was very much worried about length as an issue when it came to his works, particularly in the 1930s. One reason for this is that he'd recently had an experience of touring the United States with a piece of music he'd written specially for that tour, his variations on the theme of Corelli. And there's a very funny letter by Rachmaninoff where he says that he never gave an entire performance. In fact, he cut it as he was playing it. And he says, I was guided by the coughing. In other words, the more coughing there was, then he would leave out the next variation. And he said, I think my minimum score is four variations. And I think that was in Grand Rapids, so I think they got less than half the piece. But he was obviously very worried, and being a performer and becoming a virtuoso performer of his own work had made him acutely aware of how people were responding to the kind of performances of his own music that he was given. And I think he really noticed, you can really tell when people are shuffling uncomfortably and looking unhappy. And this had made him very, very aware of the issue of length. So the second sonata was drastically cut. But he also mentions superfluous notes. There's a pretty good example of that right from the beginning of the sonata. Let's hear how the sonata opens in the original version. Now, that may not sound very different from what we heard a moment ago, so I'll get Yevgenia to play that, if you wouldn't mind, a little bit slower, so that we can hear particularly the right-hand figurations, the accompanying figurations, what's going on there. There's a lot of big, thick chords taking up the whole hand there, moving very rapidly, and it makes a very big, rich, sonorous kind of sound. But when he made the revised version of that passage, Rachmaninoff very carefully thinned it out. And this is how it's sounds. Would you play that slowly, the revised version for us, please?
So even at that slow tempo, you can see it's not so much big cause as a rippling effect, which is caused by, as it were, letting air into the textures, which is one thing he seems to be doing all the way through this sonata. Could you, could you play that at full speed so we can hear how the effect is? It's a cleaner sound, but I think it's also more alive. That kind of rippling effect creates something that's almost more impressionistic than that big, thick, chordal first version, which is easier to play. I asked Yevgenia at the beginning of the program, and not entirely to my surprise, she thought that Rachmaninoff made it easier for her in the revision. Fair enough? Yeah. yeah. Yes. But then he'd had quite a lot of experience of playing his own music in public by then, and I think he probably decided that if he could make things a little easier for himself, uh, particularly in passages like that, then that was a good idea. But let's have a look at the beginning of that sonata from another point of view, because I want to, to really draw our attention here to how original Rachmaninoff's musical thinking is at this point. The sonata starts with a downward plunging figure, a kind of flourish which really spells out the key of B-flat minor. It's a typical kind of virtuoso flourish. And if Rachmaninoff were just a kind of showy composer, if he was trying to grab your attention with something that was really interesting at the start, perhaps he'd just have left it at that. He's got the attention of the audience, fine. But no, that figure, even though it sounds like a kind of almost cliched virtuosic figure, is integrated into the musical drama that he creates in this sonata. If you think of that flourish, down, and then listen to how the left hand, almost immediately afterwards, paraphrases that descent in a kind of improvisatory second thought. It's a much slower, freer tracing of the same downward falling pattern. But there's also something else that's rather crucial there. The three notes that start that improvisatory descent are F, E and E flat. Da, da, dum. Now hold those in mind because those are exactly the same notes that begin the first movement's second theme. The more you look at this sonata, the more you can see that there are connections like that operating at all sorts of levels throughout the music. It really used to make me mad when I was younger and Rachmaninoff was deeply out of fashion when critics in this country used to say that it was all loose and baggy and film music and that Rachmaninoff wasn't much of a musical thinker. I remember one eminent critic beginning a review with Rachmaninoff was not a clever man. Well, I hope that there's one thing I can show in this program, it is that he was a very clever composer, a very ingenious composer. At the same time as he seems to be so emotionally free and lyrically open, he's also very intricate and uh, extremely careful and crafty in the way that he joins up ideas in this sonata and makes them connect. It's full of inner connections. And I wonder if it was the experience of revising this sonata, revisiting it in 1931. Maybe it was an agreeable surprise for Rachmaninoff to discover just how clever he'd been. And maybe that was one of the reasons why he perhaps decided to make this second version of the sonata a little bit less showy. There's a very good example at the end of the first movement. In the original version, there's a big, slow cadence. And what you have is the hands crossing so that the left hand plays a chord and then arpeggiates and then rises right over the right hand to take a note at the top, at the very top.
compare that with the revised version, it may not be as eye-catching, but it's much more clear musically. Instead of being caught by that left-hand high note, you can hear how the melodic phrase falls. And the thing that you also notice is that the first three notes of that melodic falling phrase, da-da-dee, are those same notes that began that flourish at the beginning of the sonata, unlinked into the second theme, another inner connection. So we've seen something about how Rachmaninoff thinned the sonata out in the revision and let air into the textures, and at the same time made some of its processes, its thought processes, easier to follow. I also mentioned at the beginning of the program that he cut the sonata quite drastically. Now, that may have been a kind of panicked reaction to the fact that people were coughing very loudly during performances of his own music. But what's interesting in the second sonata is that although he cut it quite extensively, I think he removed about 120 bars in total, the structure is still recognizably the same, even though it's condensed. The same sort of things seem to happen in the same sort of places. And it's certainly, I don't feel listening to the second version of the sonata that there's any point at which I feel you've kind of ridden over a bump. Let's just listen to the whole magnificent build-up in the first movement development section in this condensed, revised version. Uh, is there any point in this for you in which you feel, oh, there's something missing? There certainly isn't for me. can't hear any bad joins in that passage. It's a marvelous, condensed, powerful, concentrated build-up that sweeps back almost inevitably into the recapitulation of the first theme at the end. But there's another detail in that passage I'd like to draw your attention to. I wonder if you noticed those rather striking falling scales near the end. Would you mind playing those for us, Yevgenia? sound awfully like chiming bells, doesn't it? And you go back and look, and you discover that the same year as he wrote the first version of the sonata, 1913, he wrote his huge choral symphony, The Bells, based on poetry by Edgar Allan Poe. And every English book I've read that contains writing on this sonata draws attention to that passage and says, doesn't that sound like bells? But there's a problem. It's only English bells that sound like that. 
No other bell ringing tradition in the world has that kind of chiming. Dun, 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 dun. Or anything like our change ringing, which is one of the most extraordinarily intricate kinds of folk music that exists in the world. Russian bells are very distinctive too. And in fact, Rachmaninoff was fascinated, loved the sound of bells as a child. He remembered being enthralled by the sound of the bells in the local cathedral. But they don't make that dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum noise. However, there is something in that passage that is much more like a, a Russian bell, as Yevgenia was pointing out over here. Would, would you show that for us? What the left hand is doing is the real bell sound for Rachmaninoff. Now, I don't know whether he'd ever heard English bells and decided to reconcile east and west in some kind of miraculous musical symbol at that point, but I think it's important to stress that the bell sounds in Rachmaninoff are quite different from what we are culturally programmed to expect. And in fact, there are some more bell-like sounds in the first movement of the second piano sonata, which are very like a passage in the choral symphony, the bells, the last movement, funeral bells. Well, I think even if I didn't mention that title, you'd probably guess there was something rather dark, possibly morbid about the sound of these bells in the first movement of the piano sonata. It's a wonderful moment with the beautiful use of the sustaining pedal there to make those sounds blur and run into each other. But even there, there's a fascinating, clever connection going on. Because did you notice those syncopated chords in answer to the deep bell sounds? Dum, 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 dum. They're picking out the same da di da chromatic step figure that we heard right at the beginning of the sonata, only now upside down. That's another example of how cleverly, the more you look at this sonata, the more you'll see that all the passages connect with one another. There really is, despite what Rachmaninoff said in that letter, very little that's superfluous to his musical argument. Now, there's a beautiful central slow movement to the Rachmaninoff second piano sonata. It's in three movements and the slow movement comes in the middle. But the key, E minor, is about as far as it's possible to get from the home key of the sonata, B flat minor. Just to give you an example of how remote the tonalities are, I'll ask Evgenia if she'd play the chords of B flat minor and E minor. Yes, it would be a bit of a wrench, wouldn't it, to follow that lovely B flat minor chord at the end of the first movement with an E minor theme at the beginning of the slow movement. So what Rachmaninoff does is he creates a lovely modulating passage, a kind of meditative bridge between the two worlds of the first movement and the slow movement. To give you an idea of how he does it, I'll ask Yevgenia to play that cadence at the end of the first movement and then lead through just to the very first phrase of the slow movement theme.
Again, sorry to cut it off like that. You'll hear the full tune in a moment. But there's just another little detail I'd like to draw your attention to in that passage. Just before the end, there was that very simple three-note cadence that the piano played. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard Rachmaninoff's wonderful choral vespers, or the all-night vigil, I think, to give it its proper title, which he wrote for the church, for the church choir. That passage could just have come straight out of it. It's exactly the kind of passage you'd associate with a cadence in his choral work. I can just imagine Russian basses singing those deep notes at the bottom. Now, Rachmaninoff may be hinting at church music at this point in the sonata for quite a particular reason. Because the melody of the slow movement shows a kind of influence of Russian traditional chant in a rather different kind of way. Let's hear that melody of the slow movement. I know that doesn't sound very churchy. It's got a kind of rocking quality to it, like a lullaby. But at the same time, there's something very interesting about that, which is typical of a lot of Rachmaninoff's themes, which is that it circles around one or two notes, often just within the interval of the third. one little leap in the middle, it's all circling thirds, very tight interval. A lot of Rachmaninoff's melodies do that. One of the most striking examples of that is at the opening of his famous third piano concerto, which again has a kind of stepwise movement where all the phrases seem to be contained within the interval of a third. Now that really does sound like it could be a chant of some kind. That movement within a third is also very typical of a lot of traditional Russian Orthodox chant. Here's an example I think we can now play for you on a CD, a particularly old example of what they call Znamieni chant. It's a chant called Invincible Lord of Hosts. Let's hear that opening theme from the slow movement again. It doesn't have quite the same churchy character, but certainly you can hear how it all moves within that interval of the third, very tightly, going backwards and forwards by step, just as that chant figure we just heard did. It's interesting that, in fact, that chant-like or folk song-like character is clearer in the revision than it is in the original version, because in the original version, the melody is at every note supported by full chords in the right hand. 
So, in 1931, in exile from his homeland, Rachmaninoff emphasizes that folk song or folk chant or religious chant-like character, that very Russian element in that melody, by removing those supportive chords. In fact, it's very typical of Rachmaninoff that in the years he spent in exile in America, he intensifies that involvement with Russian folk music. So for him, it was a means of maybe remaining in contact with his homeland in some spiritual sense. We've got another question here, though, I think. This is Alexandra Daliescu. Is there any evidence that Rachmaninoff was more comfortable writing in variation form rather than in conventional sonata form? One thing that critics always used to complain about was the way that Russians used sonata form. They didn't use it properly. And it's been argued, certainly, that maybe Rachmaninoff was happier with different kinds of musical forms. This variation aspect is extremely interesting because it's something that Rachmaninoff underlined when he revised the piano sonata. We noticed that in the original version, when we had that beautiful melody, it was supported by full chords in the right hand. And then he removed the chords, just has the right hand pick out the melody, and it becomes simpler, more folk-like, and I think more eloquent. But when that melody, that melodic phrase is repeated a few bars later, this time, he leaves in that, that thick chordal writing in the right hand, so that actually the second phrase does sound much more like a variation on the first phrase that we heard a moment or two before. And there's a little decoration on the top. There's a tiny figure that the pianist has to make it sound almost like another voice joining in at the top. It's another falling third. Dee -dum. It sounds almost like a tiny voice, a high voice, or maybe the voice of a child, responding to what is actually the essence of the melody, this interval of the descending third. It sounds like this. So in the original version of the sonata, we have something like two statements of the melody. In the revised version, we get a melody and then we get a variation on it. So it does seem that he takes very naturally and seems to have regarded in the revised version that it was even more natural for him to follow this kind of variational thinking. You've got a point there. But remember that beautiful transition passage that led from the first movement to the second. That's not variation. That's a kind of developmental thinking that Beethoven would have been very proud of. And we've also seen how at the beginning of the sonata, that descending figure, dee da dum, became a kind of musical seed that develops and puts out shoots in all kinds of new directions. And there's an example of that here. There's another one of these inner connections going on. Do you remember as we heard that second phrase of the slow movement, we had that voice of a child figure on the top, dee dum, that falling third. That is a very important connection with something right from the beginning of the piece. Do you remember how the sonata began? another falling third. So at the same time, Rachmaninoff is showing that he's very naturally drawn to variation technique. He's also showing that he can develop tiny musical ideas in exactly the same way that Beethoven did. So I think, I think it would be fair to say that he was actually much better at conventional, if you like, sonata argument than a lot of critics have given him 
credit for. But it's good to see that ideas and critics received opinions about Rachmaninoff are beginning to change and he's getting a bit more of the respect he deserves these days. Well, there's another interesting connection just a little later in this slow movement. The first melody builds up to a very big, warm climax and then subsides onto this, which seems almost like a kind of decorative, improvisatory figure. But again, there are the same three notes at the beginning. That falling three-step chromatic figure right from the beginning of the sonata. But it's now developed in a kind of new way, a melodic way, and turned into a huge kind of cadenza-like climax. If you listen to this passage and keep that figure at the backs of your minds, you'll hear how it's always putting out new shoots, speeding up, slowing down, accompanying itself at different speeds. Both the left hand and the right hand are full of it, but it seems that all the time it's creating new shapes and patterns. I do think that this is intellectual composing of a very high quality at the same time as it sounds like a wonderfully free improvisation. There you are at the end, you can hear more falling figures. If you were to play those beside the falling figures from the beginning, you would say they were two different figures. But when you hear them at either end of that passage, you can see how the one has developed and become the other, transformed itself into a new shape. It's a marvelous example of a kind of organic thinking that Rachmaninoff was also very good at. But there's another question I think here from Andrew Dunlop. You've talked about how Rachmaninoff changed the sound of the sonata in the revision and about how he cut it. Are there any other major structural differences between the two versions of the second sonata? Well, there's a very nice example just coming up right at the end of the slow movement. One big and very important difference between what happens in the first version of the sonata and the revision. We have a huge climax and gradually the music winds down back into the home key of the slow movement of E minor. Now, this would be the point at which you would expect a recapitulation. And indeed, in the first version, we do. The song theme that we heard from the beginning of the slow movement comes back in richer, fuller harmonies and is expanded and finally turns into the major key. But in the revision, Rachmaninoff makes this a kind of double recapitulation because what comes back isn't the first theme of the slow movement, but that beautiful second theme from the first movement. This is, I think the only way to illustrate this is to get Yevgenia to play it for us.
lovely final reference again to dee-da-dum-bum. But it's beautiful the way in the revision Rachmaninoff prepares you to expect the return of one theme and in fact brings back another theme from the first movement. And what he shows by doing that is that in fact both themes are based on the same pattern, that pattern of the third. It's an ingenious way of showing that the slow movement and the first movement belong to each other, that they're interconnected. It's also as though he's saying this new world that we move to in moving from B flat minor to E minor, it's not really a new world at all. There are doors that open between them and you can see that actually they're based on exactly the same ideas, just reworked to give a different kind of character. It's another example of the marvelously subtle thinking of this sonata. Now, as if to stress the point, there's another beautiful, short, linking passage between two worlds, as it were now, which takes us back from the E major at the end of the slow movement to B-flat major for the beginning of the finale, which bursts out like this. And again, it's clearly that flourish, isn't it, that began the first movement. It's exactly the same figure, only now turned into the major, ending with a magnificently emphatic B-flat major chord. But there's another interesting feature of the music that follows this that's not often commented on in Rachmaninoff's music, but it is very important, because the finale is basically in 3-4, three, three fast beats to a bar. But Rachmaninoff is constantly pulling against that beat, stretching it, pushing the accents in different places. Well, this finale really is a marvellous, exhilarating forward ride. It really sweeps the listener along with it. And it culminates in what sounds to me like a pretty clear echo of that choral symphony, The Bells. And in particular, the climax of the first movement, Sleigh Bells, which is itself about an exhilarating ride. A theme that keeps falling by step and then returning to the note it started on. At the same time, that falling pattern of the slow movement melody is here too. At the same time, you may have noticed that there are those figures answering in the left hand. Dum da 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 da. It's that descending three-note chromatic step, only now upside down, inverted, showing that even if this is a reference to the Bell Symphony, it's fundamentally integrated into the living tissue of the second sonata. It's brought about because it belongs and because it fits with the kind of musical argument that Rachmaninoff has created and set in motion right at the beginning of this sonata. Well, we'll hear a complete performance of the sonata in a moment, but um, first of all, there's an opportunity to ask questions, and I think we have one from another student here, Lulu Yang. Does Rachmaninoff's piano writing have its roots in the Germanic 19th century repertoire, or was he influenced by other Russian composers in this respect? Well, I think the answer to your question, Lulu, is, is that it isn't an awe, and that's one of the things that makes it interesting. He was definitely influenced by the Germanic writers. I think you can often hear Brahms in Rachmaninoff's writing, particularly those wonderful big rich chords, and those rich chords with which Rachmaninoff supports his melodies in the original version of the sonata are very Brahmsian. It's interesting that as he thought more in Russian terms in the revised version of the sonata, that he thins out a lot of that kind of Brahmsian richness He's obviously wanting to align himself more with the Russian school then. Another German composer I think he learned a great deal from was Schumann. One thing you'll notice as you listen to this sonata is how often 
the voices in the piano writing are not just the melody or the bass, but there are inner voices, voices that he wants you to pick out, almost like a tenor line or an alto line, which in its way are as important, at least, as the melodic line. And that's something which is very typical of Schumann and was also something that very much that Vladimir Horowitz, one of Rachmaninoff's first great interpreters, loved to pick out. In fact, he picked out it so much that uh, one American critic, the composer Virgil Thompson, dubbed him the master of musical distortion because he was so fond of pulling out the middle lines in Rachmaninoff that sometimes he seemed to forget where the tune was. You can also definitely hear Tchaikovsky. I don't think there's any doubt that Tchaikovsky left a very deep impression on Rachmaninoff's piano writing. You can certainly hear parts of the first piano concerto of Tchaikovsky there, which is in the same key as this sonata, B-flat minor, an unusual key. And I'm sure that's more than just a coincidence that Rachmaninoff would have been thinking of his great Russian forebear in that respect. But what's interesting about this is that Rachmaninoff fuses East and West so successfully in his style that I don't think you're ever aware of any incongruity because some composers, some Russian composers, you can definitely tell that this is a culture that is not just musically, but in many other ways, poised between East and West, between Europe and something quite different. Sometimes critics from the West have found it difficult to understand what Russians are trying to get at in music because the music seems in some ways to be like European models and then to go off and follow its own rather different uh, lines of thought. But Rachmaninoff really does bring together all these influences and these elements in his music and fuse them so successfully. I'm sure everyone would agree that it, it never sounds like anybody else but Rachmaninoff. There's, a, there's definitely a Rachmaninoff sound. And you can say, oh, that's like Schumann, that's like Brahms. And another example, another very striking example, if you think about that flourish that the sonata begins with, it's very similar to the flourish that begins Chopin's third piano sonata. In fact, Rachmaninoff could almost have taken it. And yet it doesn't sound like Chopin. I mean, once it's pointed out to you, it's obvious that the two must be connected. And yet I'd heard it several times without making that connection in my head. He's one of those marvelous composers, Rachmaninoff, who can take influences, who can imitate, and yet as soon as he works it out in his own music, it always sounds like him. And that's true originality, I think. It's not striving not to be like other people, but being so original that even when you imitate, it still sounds like you. And now I think it really is time we heard a complete performance of Rachmaninoff's second piano sonata in its revised version. And here to play it is our soloist, Yevgenia Rubinova. <laughs> 